Good evening. By pressing play, you've unlocked a door with the key of imagination. Beyond is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. Welcome to Agoraphobia, the Agora Podcast Network's spooktacular month of ghoulishly engaging content celebrating the spirit of the Halloween season. So turn on all the lights, check all the closets and cupboards, look under the beds, and continue, if you dare. In this episode, we have two terrifying tales that prove that hell hath no fury like women's creative freeform, as Agora's Heather Tesco and Raven Briscalo run the show. First up, we have Heather, who shares with us a tale of haunting history. So I need to tell you about the time that I was visiting Hampton Court. It was back in 2000, on the first day of my first trip to London, and I'd been on a guided tour And somehow, I spent way too much time staring at the ceiling of the Chapel Royal, which is totally the kind of thing you can see me doing, right? And I got lost from my tour. I'm not really sure how they allowed that to happen, but somehow I wound up sitting in Henry VIII's own seat, and I sort of drifted off. I suppose mine had probably been the last tour of the day. Anyway, I'd been tired from jet lag, and somehow I just passed out. So there I am, asleep, in the Chapel Royal, just sound asleep. They must have come through and locked everything up, or or, I don't know, anything like that, and I just slept through it all. When I woke up, it was dark. And to be honest, it was quite spooky. So I kind of woke up and shook the sleep off, and I decided I needed to find a way out, right? I had no idea what time it was. My watch was still on California time, and I couldn't remember what the time difference was, I just knew it was late. So I walked through the chapel, and I walked past the chair where supposedly Thomas Cranmer left a note outlining Henry's fifth wife, Catherine Howard's, previous licentious experiences with men before she was married to him. And I shuddered, thinking about what happened to her once the investigation began. So I left the chapel. I started wandering around aimlessly, hoping that someone would just come and help me out. I mean, there had to be a security guard around here, right? There just had to be. I got a little bit lost. There was light from a full moon coming through some of the windows. But other than that, there wasn't much in the way of illumination. Some of the security cameras had little red lights on them, but I actually don't think they were working. After all, I was wandering around here unattended, and nobody seemed to notice. I walked into a long gallery. It was lined on either side with paintings of the royal kings and queens. It had windows on one side. And through those windows, I could just see a little bit of the hallway, enough to keep walking straight in front of me. But I certainly couldn't see the other end of the hallway yet. And that was when I heard it. The creaking of the floor. Someone was in here. Someone or or something. I breathed in and I held my breath, waiting to see what would happen. And suddenly I realized that 
that the air was very moist and, and yet my throat was really dry. And I couldn't think straight. I thought about screaming, but I couldn't remember why. I couldn't seem to remember anything. I just felt so confused and and I just wanted to get out of there, but I couldn't move. And then the sound got closer. And I heard sobbing. Kind of this wailing, crying sound. Maybe it was just a cat meowing, I told myself. Maybe it was just a cat or a dog. Sure, a dog got in. He was hungry. He thought I had food. That is what it was. But then I saw it. A white cloud, this kind of wreath, this just white steam coming at me. I backed against the wall. I halfway tripped over the low rope that was there to keep people away from the paintings. And I thought, surely that would be enough to trip the alarm system and, and someone could come and help me, no? I didn't hear anything, though. Maybe it was a silent alarm? So I sat there, pressed up against the wall, underneath a portrait of Henry VIII. And I felt so clammy. It's the British air, I told myself. It's just the British moist air. And then I got so, so very cold. I was just covered in chills and goosebumps. Oh, I was shivering. I closed my eyes. And that was when I heard a woman's voice. I need to tell him. You need to let me tell him. I pulled my knees up to my chest and the chill seemed to just sit on top of me. Why won't you look at me? I need to tell him. The guards are coming so quickly. I don't have much time, but if I get to him, I can tell him. I need to tell him. I closed my eyes so tightly. Please, I need to beg mercy of his highness. Please. Just then, the door on the far end opens. And I see the beam of a flashlight. The wraith just disappears with this shuddering scream. Why didn't you let me tell him? The guards walk over to me, and I'm clammy, and I'm freezing. Madam, you shouldn't be in here. What are you doing here? I, um, I got lost from my tour. I managed to mumble. Well, you shouldn't be in here. Not tonight. None of us like to come in here, especially at night. We need to get you out of here anyway. If the curators knew you were in here alone, we could all lose our jobs. They help me out walk me back to the entrance. I, I keep looking back to see if I can see anything, but I, I just don't. So they gave me the night bus schedule. They told me where to go to catch the bus. They gave me some water, and I'm hurriedly pushed out the door, and I look back, and I swear I can hear her screaming still. I'll never forget that night when Catherine Howard begged me to let her talk to Henry and beg his mercy. If only I could, I think. I've never been back to Hampton Court, and I have no interest in going back. But if you should go, tell Catherine I'm sorry I couldn't help her. It stayed with me all of these years, that night that I met Catherine in the haunted gallery. If you like this story, you can listen to more non-haunted factual tales of Tudor England by subscribing to the Renaissance English History Podcast on your podcatcher of choice, or going to englandcast.com. Next, we have Raven, who shares with us a different point of view about that which was plaguing London in the 17th century. This being observations, or 
memorials of the most remarkable occurrences, as well public as private, which happened in London during the Great Visitation in 1665, written by a flea who continued all the while in London. This is a journal written to make remembrance of a voice rarely, if ever, heard by human ears. Many of you have heard of the great bubonic plague that occurred in London in 1665. Lamentable stories of thousands of sick and dying, terrible tales of pits of bodies and even of those nurses hastening their patients' deaths so that they could loot the unfortunate's home. All of these stories are told from one person to another, but never do you hear of the horrors of what happened to us. I am an oriental rat flea. Humans often malign us as malicious creatures who actively seek to spread this distemper you call the plague. Here, I will tell you of my kind and of our deaths by the millions. I was born in a luxurious place. My mother fed and lived upon rats in the hold of a grand ship of Holland. The ship was transporting silk, and so, as a larvae, I lived in the folds of silk, feeding upon the blood droppings from the adults. This was such a good nursery that many of my 47 brothers and sisters lived to be fat and happy. For the most part, the rats were healthy, but some occasionally took sick. They almost always recovered, so were of little concern. Our ship finally came to port in December 1664. The silk I was bundling was carried into the cold and stink of the London shipyard. By this time, I was pupating and almost ready to emerge as an adult, fully formed flea. In the storehouse, there were many rats, as the stall next door was full of barley on which they could feed. They scurried about in great multitudes. When my silk home was opened to the world, I was shaken out as the silk was displayed. There were so many rats, I quickly found a home and a meal all in one. I saw that I wasn't the only one. Many of the fleas from the ship, or their young, had also found shelter here. From our vantage point, we could see and hear conversations between the human merchants, and the other was afraid as they had been hearing rumors of the visitation of the plague upon Holland. The sick man did his best to reassure the other, but within a few days we had heard other human merchants speaking of a death from the plague in this very house. We didn't hear much more for weeks, but we had our own concerns. The rats became fewer, as the weather grew colder, their normally sleek black fur became unkempt, making it more difficult for us to move through it. They huddled together in their nests in the roofs of buildings and would not go out to find food. 
Other fleas began to die and act erratically, but I was too concerned with the condition of my hosts to pay attention to them. Eventually, my hosts died either from cold or illness, I could not say. I thought I wouldn't have to go far to find another host, but many of the rats that were there before were now gone, and those that remained were sick and near death themselves, if not already dead. By this time, it was the end of March, and the weather was beginning to warm. I was able to venture out, which was lucky, because my belly was giving me no choice. I smelled the air with my antenna, and tasted the breath of many possible hosts in the street. Jumping in that direction, I followed the scent and the cracks in the cobblestone, eventually finding a young kitten curled in a ball under the stall of a puppeteer. Sliding through the kitten's fur, I felt good. Although it was small and thin, the kitten seemed healthy, and its fur was well kept. I pierced its skin and took a blood meal, the first of many that day. As I was feeding, I was hoping that she would be my last host. Leaving the rat was a very undesirable experience. Settling in, I listened to the puppeteer plying her trade. She was a young woman with light brown hair, pale skin, and a thick accent. For a few days, I lived with her, later finding her name was Kate, and her little kitten, like this, for a fortnight, when her landlord came calling. The landlord and her family were fleeing the city, and Kate had to leave. They had family in Wapping, willing to entertain them until the plague was passed. Kate pleaded with her, saying that things weren't nearly that bad, but the woman, who was a known hypochondriac, was going on about the time the plague struck Naples, and 20,000 people were buried every week. She would not die in such a manner, so she was locking up her house, and Kate must find lodgings or be turned out into the street. Kate pleaded yet again with her lady, saying that they had been good and civil people with kindness in their hearts for her. Crying, she said that she didn't know who would take her in, for people were afraid of one another now. There's no getting lodging anywhere. The lady suggested that Kate be taken in by her sister in St. Giles. Although the plague had gotten its start there, it seems to have abated. Having no other choice, she packed her things, bundled the kitten, and myself along with, in a small blanket. The landlady, seeing this, told Kate in a motherly manner to be wary. The Lord Mayor had put out an order that all dogs, pigs, and cats in the city were to be killed and had appointed a special officer to that purpose. With even more tears coming down her face, she tucked the kitten bundle into her dress and covered it with a scarf. Here, wrapped up with it, the kitten could not bite or scratch at me when I bit it, so I took full advantage. As I went to drink, I felt something strange, deep in my throat. There was a bit of something hard, like a stone. 
For a second it was there and then gone, so I put it out of my mind when I started to hear ruckus in the street. Fortune tellers and astrologers were shouting out to people walking by. Some were in consultation with customers, who were asking them, Oh sir, for the lord's sake, what will become of me? Will my mistress keep me, or will she turn me out? Will she stay here, or will she go into the country? If she goes into the country, will she take me with her? Or will she leave me here, to be starved and undone? The girl must have been jostled into someone then, as there was an abrupt crushing, causing the kitten to mew. A man shouted something about a physic, and there was the crinkling of paper before Kate was off again. She mumbled prayers under her breath, asking God to protect her from the odorous vapors coming from the man. Eventually, we stopped and she rapped upon a door. There were sounds coming from inside the house, but they were mostly indistinct. I felt the motion of Kate looking up and down the street. Then she banged on the door and called to her sister, Anna. Apparently not wanting to risk calling the local guards down upon her, Kate instead entered the house through a window, which was likely left open to let out bad air. In the upstairs bedroom, Kate released the kitten from its bundle on her chest, and I was able to see what was the matter. There was a young maiden undressed on the bed, and I immediately discovered the fatal tokens upon the inside of her thighs. Anna, not being able to contain herself, threw down her candle and shrieked out in such a frightful manner that it was enough to place terror upon the stoutest heart in the world, nor was it one scream or one cry. But the fright having seized her spirits, she fainted first, then recovered, then ran all over the house, up and down the stairs, like one distracted, and indeed really was distracted, and continued screeching and crying out for several hours, void of all sense or at least government of her senses, and never came thoroughly to herself again. As to the young maiden, she was a dead corpse from that moment, for the gangrene which occasions the spots had spread over her whole body, and she died in less than two hours. But still Anna continued to cry out, not knowing anything more of her companion for several hours after she was dead. As I listened to Kate's attempts to console and quiet Anna, the stone in my throat returned. I swallowed and swallowed like I did before, but this time it was not coming unlodged. The feeling was disquieting, and I fed upon the kitten to put myself at ease but the lump had grown into a minor blockage, like a stone in a stream, which even feeding would not release. A pitiable outburst brought my attention to the sisters. They discussed their fate, being poor and women alone. They could not depend upon help. Anna continued to be distracted, speaking of her health and her need for a potion to preserve her from the distemper. 
but that they could not have the hope of the coin to afford it. She spoke like this in hysterical circles for some time, when Kate suggested they call upon a Dr. Upton. He had, it seems, added to his bills, which he gave her in the street, this advertisement that said, in capital letters, he gives advice to the poor for nothing. Firmly grasping her sister with fiery light in her eyes, Anna insisted that Kate go and speak to this Dr. Upton. Once again, bundling up the kitten to hide it within the folds and layers of her dress, Kate rushed back into the street. When she found him, an abundance of poor people surrounded this Dr. Upton, to whom he made a great many fine speeches, examined them of the state of their health and of the constitution of their bodies, and told them many good things for them to do, which were at no great moment. But the issue and conclusion of all was that he had a tonic or physic, which if they took of such a quantity of every morning, he would pawn his life that they should never have the plague. No, though they lived in the house of people that were infected. This made the people resolve to have it, but then the price of it was so much I think it was half a crown. But sir, says poor Kate, I am a poor puppeteer and am kept by the people who are my patrons. At your bill, say, you give the poor your help for nothing. I, good women, says the doctor, so I do. As published there, I give my advice to the poor for nothing, but not my physic. Alas, sir, she says, that is a snare laid for the poor. Then, for you, give them advice for nothing. That is to say, you advise them gratis to buy your physic for their money. So does every shopkeeper with his wares. Here, Kate began to give him ill words and stood at his door all that day, telling her tale to all the people that came, till the doctor finding she turned away his customers, was obliged to call her upstairs again and give her a box of physic for nothing. Arriving back at the home of her sister Anna with Dr. Upton's brew, Kate gave her the instructions and bade her drink some now to have the most immediate and full effect. Such a relief came over Anna as she sipped and muttered prayers. Now that Anna's spell was over, she and Kate discussed what to do about the poor maiden, who was a shop girl that roomed with Anna, now that the distemper had snuffed out her life. Kate volunteered to call the magistrate who would determine whether or no the creature actually did die of the plague or some other disease. Anna objected because the Lord Mayor had decreed that any house being known to have the affliction should be shut up and those inside would not be allowed to leave, nor for work or any other reason. After conversing for some time, they resolved to bribe an examiner 
to say that the maiden had died of the spotted fever. Throughout their consultation, Anna would take sips of Dr. Upton's physics, which seemed to calm her fragile nerves. The physics seemed to take effect because Anna became very drowsy. So it was resolved that all should go to bed for the night, that the sisters and the kitten should share a bed together, and they would send for the examiner in the morning. I tried again to feed from the kitten, but the lump in my throat was worse still. No matter how long I would bite or how excellent a location I could find, the blood wasn't filling me, so I jumped off and left the kitten. I landed on Anna and swiftly made move to drink. Her blood tasted foul, metallic, and bitter. I then saw another flea. He was very thin and could hardly move. Like me, he was biting over and over, but not filling up. I went to him and asked if he too tasted the tainted nature of her blood. He said, The humans took physics, potions, and brew. They poisoned themselves beforehand for fear of the poison of the infection and prepared their body for the plague instead of preserving themselves against it. These odious and fatal preparations, some with mercury and some with other things as bad, perfectly remote from the things it pretended to be, and rather hurtful than serviceable to the body in the case an infection followed. Feeling the ache in my throat and the ache in my stomach from hunger, I asked him what these pains could be. It is death, he told me. It is panic and thirst and starvation and anguish. Alarmed, I bid him tell me what he knew. He told me of the scores of dead in this very room, not able to find a way out or a meal that would sustain them. For others, the disease made them run out of their houses at all hazards, and with the plague visibly upon them, not knowing either whither to go or what to do, or, indeed, what they did. And many that did so were driven to dreadful exigencies and extremities, and perished in the streets or in the fields for mere want, or dropped down by the raging violence of the thirst upon them. Others wandered into the country and went forward any way as their desperation guided them, not knowing whither they went or would go, till faint and tired, and not getting any relief from the rats or dogs along the road. They have perished by the roadsides, or gotten into barns, and there died. He told me of his symptoms, which were my symptoms. A blocked throat, an irresistible hunger. It was only the beginning for me, but he had been in this sad, pitiable state for some time. I could see my future clearly in front of me, this thin, dried husk, barely alive. Thousands of humans were dead, and tens of thousands would die. 
But for us, this black death would kill millions. For the rest of the night, I was in a panic, frantically searching for a place to bite that would not just warm my mouth, but would fill my belly. Every bite, the blood would rush in, but I could not swallow it down. Mere trickles would get past this blockage in my throat. Though my mouth filled, the blood had nowhere to go, and I could only vomit it back up again. My stomach was in knots. An empty pit, which I know would only grow deeper and deeper. As a flea, I could live for weeks with no food or drink. Moving over to Kate, I bit once more as my throat sealed completely, and my fate along with it. This production was a combination of original work and direct passages from the novel A Journal of the Plague Year by Daniel Defoe to show what it would have been like to be a flea during the Plague of London. While the story is fiction, the facts are mostly true. The bacteria that causes Black Death is Yersinia pestis. Many people are familiar with the symptoms in humans, swollen lymph nodes, blackened hands and feet, excruciating pain and death. However, the symptoms in the fleas that carry the disease can tell us a lot about how it's transmitted. Inside the flea's throat is a structure called the proventriculus. It is full of tiny teeth that slice open red blood cells before they enter the flea's stomach. The Yersinia bacteria blocks this passage between the proventriculus and the stomach. Every time the flea attempts to feed, the blood hits this blockage and goes right back into the flea's victim, carrying the bacteria along with it. This strategy of the Yersinia has the flea biting over and over again as it slowly starves to death, helping the bacteria that is killing it all the while. A warm welcome back to those of you who made it back, and a little bit of advice to take with you before you go. Not all knowledge is safe, and some things you can't unhear. The smartest of you will count your blessings and stay clear of dark corners and dangerous downloads. But those of you more daring who laugh in the face of fear will undoubtedly be back like a moth drawn to the flame for the next installment of Agoraphobia. Oh.